0: Hello, and welcome to A Year with Jesus. I'm Philip. And I'm Bill. And this week, we're in Mark chapter 10 and Mark chapter 11. Jesus has a lot going on here as Mark has been pushing us forward towards the last week of the life of Christ. And we're going to see some
1: major teaching sections in these chapters, right? That's right. If you remember in chapter 9 at the Transfiguration, uh, God says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And now in chapter 10, we're actually going to get a number of teachings that Jesus Will give, and the first one they actually gather around him. He begins to teach, but the the teaching we get in this first part of chapter ten actually comes from a question the the Pharisees have for Jesus. Yeah,
0: so this crowd is there to listen. And Jesus wants to teach something pretty bold in answering their question. They have a question that I think is common to a lot of people today about divorce and is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And so Jesus has to answer this question in a way that not just addresses their concern, but that really makes sense and points to God's authority. And so he goes all the way back to the beginning, to creation, and he explains to them that it's only a hard heart that wants to look for some excuse to jump out of this covenant. But God has made us from the very beginning to leave father and mother and the two to become one. So Jesus gives this great principle, whatever God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, we might remember that when we went through the book of Matthew, there was one exception when someone has committed adultery, but Jesus is laying down the principle here and Mark is driving home that principle that marriage really is for life. Bill, when you think about the significance of God establishing marriage for us, what do you appreciate about that?
1: Yeah, so so when they come they they say Moses permitted a man to send a woman away well if God established marriage then no man can permit anyone else to 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 separate and I think we just need to appreciate what what God has bound together the the relationships that we're able to have with our spouses and just the oneness that God wants us to have in that.
0: Yeah, he, it really is an institution from God. Mm-hmm. This is not something that's just an evolutionary development. Mm-mm. This is not something that is um, an anthropological study. Yeah, or this something is, being
1: done to, for convenience sake or whatever. Yeah,
0: yeah, this is an institution created by God and therefore God governs it. God Uh, has set it here for our good, and Jesus is giving us instructions to make the most of
1: our marriage. But those are still hard, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. So in verse 10, the disciples, they come, and they're questioning him about it again. They just just heard him talk about it. But it's not that this isn't difficult to understand. It's just it's hard, and and we understand that. And in verse 11, Jesus doubles down with what he's already said. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her, and then he flips it. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man— she is committing adultery. And so again, you have this teaching that Jesus gives that's incredibly hard. But it's, it's the truth that he's wanting to instill, and he's wanting to help them understand.
0: Yeah, it's hard to fulfill, but it's not hard to understand. It's an important commandment from Christ, and the crowds were there to listen to it. And his apostles, his disciples, they want to
1: understand it to the best of their ability so mm-hmm. that they can actually obey it. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, they're coming, and they're asking Jesus these questions. And then it seems like some other people, they're bringing children around Jesus that he might touch them. And now the disciples are rebuking the children and the people. How does Jesus, he sees this, he gets frustrated and upset, and he tells them, permit them to come to me. Why is he so bothered by the disciples telling the kids to not come here? Right, because
0: the kingdom of heaven is for people like these child, right? The kingdom is for those that are pure, those that are not prideful and haughty, but those that desire mm-hmm. the blessings that Jesus is seeking to give. And so this is a great lesson for us in our lives today, right? About making sure we're not being a stumbling block for young people, making sure that we are addressing the concerns and the questions that our teenagers have, making sure that we're inviting everyone equally to come to Christ, that he's not just here for the rich or for the powerful. He's not just here for those with positions. It's actually those with positions like the Pharisees that are trying to criticize him and trap him. But these children come with much more innocent motives.
1: And we have to learn to be like children, you know, children depend and children. I think you know One of the big things I, Having two small kids Is that like Kids know how to learn because yes. they're soaking everything in. And you think about it in this chapter, how many different things he's going to teach, how many different things he's going to say. Are we going to be like children and be willing to just soak in the information that Jesus has and trust him and and believe what he's saying? Because the very next person who comes to him is kind of like a polar opposite, except that he's a young ruler, but a polar opposite from the spirit Jesus wants here in these verses. That's right. Where the
0: children are glad to be around Jesus and to see Jesus for who he is, this man is coming maybe a little bit to be justified, maybe already feeling justified, Mm -hmm. but asking this intelligent question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And yet Jesus picks up on the parts of the Ten Commandments that don't necessarily address your love for God or your reverence for God, just kind of the checkboxes, just the avoiding evil activities, commandments, and the young ruler's like, well, I've done all of that. And Jesus does love him. Jesus does feel connected to this man who has lived a righteous life, Mm But he's not willing to make sacrifices.
1: And I, I wonder if part of it is because he came to Jesus thinking that you mentioned the justification, thinking he was pretty good. Good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? I wonder if if, if he didn't just think Jesus was good, but he also thought that that he was pretty good. As Jesus gives some of the commands, do not murder, do not commit adultery, don't steal. And he's like, I've kept all these things. I'm good. I'm doing these things. And then Jesus, I think, shows us what real goodness is in the kingdom, is are you willing to give up everything and to follow God? And so he was unwilling to do that. And so... I don't think he left feeling as good as he came in. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And we have to think about how this applies to us today, right? Whatever I have,
0: it needs to be in service to the kingdom, right? It's not just taking a vow of poverty because you could do that and never change your heart. Mm -hmm. What Jesus is asking for this man is to change his heart, to get those thorns, to get those rocks out of his heart so that he can be the good soil. And, you know, when I think about this guy leaving Jesus, he's just missed out. On the greatest adventure, Mm -hmm. the greatest blessing, the greatest privilege of being with Christ, of knowing Him, of spending that final few days with Jesus. And if any of us had a time machine, we would be... Just ecstatic Absolutely. to go back and have those few days with Jesus, and he's walked away from that. And if we don't get the thorns out of our own heart, if we don't get the rocks out of our own heart, if we let the treasures of this world keep us from Christ,
1: then we are missing out every bit as much as this man is. And I just, again, that one thing you lack, I, I lack so many more things, you yeah. know, the thought that he just had, you know, and obviously but that picture, like, I, I think about him from time to time, the rich young ruler, and I think about what good is his treasures today? You know, it's yeah. not worth anything, but the treasures in heaven would have are, are worth so much more. They have infinite value. And so the disciples, they kind of see everything going around and and, and sorry, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, How hard will it be for the wealthy to enter into the kingdom of God? Is this point, Philip, that like if you have any sort of funds, like you can't you can't enter into God's kingdom? Is that is that what Jesus is driving at here?
0: Yeah, obviously not, right? We see that all through the rest of the New Testament how there were people of great generosity because of the funds they had. We think about Barnabas, we think about others. But Jesus is saying, you have to live differently than the rest of the world that has those possessions. Mm-hmm. You have to think about your wealth as a stewardship from God yeah. and something that you are been entrusted with in order to glorify God. He gives this illustration here that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Because it's true that those physical possessions are great trappings. And we have that phrase that you can't take it with you. And I was thinking about that earlier this week, Bill. It seems like the only thing we can take with us— is each other. That's right. And if those treasures are keeping us away from the kingdom, if those treasures
1: are keeping people we know and care about away from the kingdom, then we've got everything backwards. And I wonder if we need to see that that part of the richness is th- there's just this reliance on the things that I have. There's just this reliance on the riches. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I've kept all these things since from my youth. And Jesus says, with people or with man, it is impossible— But not with God. All things are possible with God. And then immediately after this, he starts to talk about again, like, this guy is unwilling to give up some riches. And Jesus, for the third time, is saying that he's going to give up his life. You know, we're we're talking about giving up hard things. At the beginning of the chapter, some people may have to give up illicit marriages. Here, the rich young ruler has to give up riches. but, But what would encourage or what would propel anyone to do anything like this? Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem And he talks about the fact that he is going to die. He's going to give up his life to give life.
0: Yes. So his sacrifice
1: shows us that if he can lay down this highest value,
0: then we certainly can lay down things of a lesser value. He lets his disciples know that not only will there be blessings in being part of the kingdom, but that they ultimately will receive both persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life but it's going to require us to make some of these sacrifices. You know, this reminds me of the man that Jesus encountered when he came off the Mount of Transfiguration, Mm -hmm. that that guy had to learn that all things are possible with God. And that lesson is being brought out again by Mark here, that all things are possible with God, not because we have a, a huge bank account right all things are possible with god because we have his son mm-hmm. and his son is here to give his life
1: to save ours and so then you end up having as the chapter continues these two different, these two parallel stories it seems like you have James and John and then the blind man Bartimaeus who who both of them, Jesus asks the same question, what do you want me to do for you? And Philip, what's the difference in how each of them respond and what lessons should we learn from that?
0: Yeah. In verse 36, we have Jesus say to these, uh, these two sons, James and John, what do you want me to do for you? And the same thing back over at the end of the chapter, when Jesus says in verse 51, what do you want me to do for you? With James and John, they are very interested in being in an exalted position. You know, mm-hmm. they're still thinking mostly of themselves, and they're still thinking kind of of a prideful thing, mm-hmm. but Bartimaeus has that dependence, and rather than depending on his own abilities or his
1: own position, he's depending on the mercy of God. That's right, and, and you even see that. You just see him shouting out. He's on the side of the road. He's shouting out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And then he gets told to take courage and to get up because Jesus is calling— And then, like you said, he asks for his sight. And I love this. He regains his sight. And now, Philip, he can go anywhere. He spent his whole life, we know, begging. But now he's got his sight. And where does he decide to go now that he's received this sight from Jesus Christ? What's interesting about Bartimaeus is that he
0: actually starts following Jesus. We know that the rich young ruler did not. We know that the Pharisees came and asked questions and they did not. But now Bartimaeus is not going to miss out. Jesus has told other people here in the gospel of Mark that they need to stay where they are. They need to let the people in their own city know about the arrival of the Messiah. Bartimaeus gets to come with him and gets to now see with his own healed
1: eyes the love and sacrifice of Christ, and so now as he's got his sight, it says he's following him on the road. And as chapter eleven begins, they're actually approaching Jerusalem. So they go from from Bethpage and in Bethany, and they start to go to Jerusalem. He sends his disciples. We have this triumphal entry where he's he's got this coat. And as they're getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, you can just imagine the scene. There's this, I think, incredible scene where people, they've got the palm branches, they're throwing it on the floor, they they take their coats, they're throwing it on the floor, and they're shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is he. And and again, like, if you're reading the Gospel of Mark for the first time, you would just see this picture as Jesus is coming to the city of David, to the city of the king. They've already called him, save us, son of David. And and now just, it it gets so incredible, so beautiful when he comes to Jerusalem and this is great buildup and yeah he turns around and goes home
0: there's nothing mm-hmm. yeah it's an amazing uh, it's an amazing scene where mark has laid out for us just in vivid detail that, so that we could just be in that moment and yet there's no crown because the crown he's come for is going to be a crown of thorns
1: mm-hmm.
0: there's no beast because this city is empty. This city is fruitless. And we're going to get an amazing illustration here in
1: Jesus' interaction with this fig tree. Yeah. He sees the fig tree and he's hungry and he sees that the fig tree had leaves, uh, but it doesn't have any fruit on it. And so he's he's upset because it should should have had figs. And he curses the fig tree. And I just imagine being one of the disciples being like, man, Jesus is really upset and he's really taking it out on the fig tree. But in the very next story, he goes to Jerusalem, he enters the temple and he starts driving out. The people who were buying and selling at the temples, he's turning the tables. He's not permitting anybody to carry merchandise. And well, you know, and I think that's a really interesting phrase there in verse 16, that he would not permit anyone to
0: carry merchandise through the temple. We we have this vision of Jesus flipping the tables or pushing the chairs over, you know, but wait a minute, he stayed in the temple long enough to just stop people at the door and say, Mm -hmm. that doesn't belong here. Mm -hmm. And isn't it amazing to think about just to make the metaphor, but in our own heart, Having Jesus there to go, you know what? That doesn't belong here. That's not good for you. This temple is my father's house, but your heart is ultimately this temple that is the father's house. And when I say to keep those treasures out, Mm -hmm. when I say to keep that relationship out, when I say to keep that pride out, it doesn't belong in the temple. And I think that's another important thing for us to set in our mind, not just that he disrupted their, their business dealings
1: but that he was interested in what actually belongs in a temple. That's right. And what belongs in a temple is God, is sacrifice to God, is whole commitment to God in our own personal life. Is that what what we're seeing? Are we treating God in a transactional way? Or are we treating God in a real, faithful, devoted covenant? Are we we having a covenant relationship with our God?
0: Yes. And so verse uh, 18 ends with, they were astonished at his teaching. Mm -hmm. And I think that really lets us understand— we might look at this and be astonished at his zeal, but they understood there was a lesson here. He was teaching Amen. them through this. Amen. And it was impressive what his priorities were and his
1: commitment and love for the heavenly father. It, but the chief priests and the scribes, they they heard it and they want to destroy him. They're not astonished. the crowd, they're astonished, but the chief priests and the scribes, they're upset because this is offending them. And so they, Jesus leaves the city and they see the fig tree. And Peter reminds him, look, it's the fig tree that you cursed. And Jesus tells them about having faith in God and, and how this great faith can change things. But what's what do you think is real? What's he really driving at there?
0: Well, he's he's definitely teaching us that the city is fruitless and that when— Time has been given, Mm -hmm. when nourishment has been given, when opportunity has been given for us to be fruitful, God expects some fruit. That's right. And there is going to be a punishment to this tree, and there's ultimately going to be a punishment here to the city as we get into chapter 14, and he talks more about that. But he sees the city as fruitless just as much as he sees this tree as fruitless. And so he both is teaching the disciples to view things in this spiritual manner, and he's also teaching them. About the power of prayer. Yeah. He's teaching them to depend on God and to turn to God. And we might get um, fascinated about saying, move mountain from here to there. But the bigger fascination is verse 25, that not just a mountain could be removed, but the guilt of our
1: sin. Which is a bit, much larger than any mountain that ever needs to be moved.
0: That's right. The guilt of our sin could be removed when we pray seeking forgiveness from the Father. And it's Jesus that's gonna make
1: that possible. That's right. And it's his authority, it's his power. And so again, he comes to Jerusalem, the chief priest, that, you know, the scribes, the elders, they come to him and they start asking, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority? to do these things. And again, they still don't get it. They're still thinking about themselves. They're still thinking about their merit. They're still thinking about whatever authority they, they think that they possess, and Jesus flips it on them.
0: Yeah, they just want to please the crowd at this point mm-hmm. and not lose their positions of influence. And so they won't even answer his questions honestly. In verse 33, they tell Jesus, well, we, we we don't know. Yeah, And it's not that they don't know. It's that they don't want to admit what they know, and they don't want to do what that requires. And Bill. I just think of all the times people have come to me and said, Philip, I have this really hard situation, and I just don't know yeah. what to do. And to me, that is just a number one indicator that they probably do know what to do. They just don't want to do that yet. And I've seen that in my own life. Mm-hmm. My wife and I have sat down together and said, man, I'm just not sure what to do. And we go, uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> we grin, yeah. we look at each other We go,
1: I think we know what we're supposed to do here. That's right. Seldom the issue is a, a lack of knowing the answer. It's they reason among themselves. And they know. If I say this— then it's going to require, there's going to be certain consequences, or it's yeah. going to require a certain response from me. And they didn't want the response. And so the question is actually a question that they don't They don't actually care to answer. And we have to be honest with ourselves about that. You know, in, in chapter 10, in chapter 11, in chapter 12, there will be questions that the scribes and the Pharisees ask Jesus, but they don't actually care about the answer. And as, as maybe as we talk to people who have questions about God, I think it's important to see how Jesus responds, where he asks them questions. To see where their heart is, to see, like, do you actually want to know the truth, or are you just looking to justify yourself, or are you just looking to do whatever it is that you feel like doing? Because if that's the mentality that you have, Jesus does honestly, he doesn't even bother with their question.
0: That's right. So as we think about these chapters together, it seems like Jesus
1: has shown us there are some crosses to pick up. Mm -hmm. Do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah. Again, there's so many hard things that I think he says, starting in chapter 10, there's some people— that they, they asked the question about marriage. And you just imagine if you're listening to that, if you were listening to that and you were there and you had been in an illicit relationship, that's a cross you'd have to pick up that I have, to, I have to leave, I have to separate so that I can actually be right with God. The rich young ruler, he had to be willing to give up his possessions. And that was a cross he was unwilling to bear. James and John want the position of glory and eventually they will suffer for Jesus Christ's sake. That'll be a cross that they'll be willing, that they'll have to bear just all throughout. Even in chapter 11, you know, are we content with with just doing things as we've done things, or are we really bearing fruit for God? Are we really being willing to listen to His authority and to bow down to King Jesus? And that's a cross that sometimes we have to bear. So I think all of this, He's been talking in chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10 about the fact that He is going to die, that He's going to pick up His cross, and to follow Him means we'll have to do the same as well. Yes, we will.
0: So we kind of skipped over a huge thing here in chapter 10, verse 45, and I think it's time for us to circle back to that and bring this home. Yeah one of Mark's critical themes through his gospel is that Jesus came as a servant. Mm -hmm. And so building on this idea that we all have a cross to pick up and to bear, we need to come back and read this. All right, Verse 43, it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Okay, Bill, as we look at chapter 10 and
1: chapter 11, why is Jesus driving home the role of a servant? Because, I mean, really, this first, this is how we become like Jesus Christ. This is how we follow in his footsteps. But this is also how people come to God. You know, it's it's the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to be served and to give his life to save people. And as long as I'm seeking to save myself, as long as I'm seeking to serve myself, sorry, as long as I'm seeking to serve myself and to do for myself, I'm never going to care about the souls of other people. That's the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees. They're looking for themselves and not for anyone else. But whenever we really learn to serve like Jesus, souls will be saved. And it takes time to really
0: internalize that. At Mm -hmm. this point, the apostles have been following Jesus for almost three years. Yeah. But they are still wrapping their head around just how upside down his kingdom is, right? They've got to understand that they're going to be servants of all. And so each one of us need to think about, why am I approaching Jesus? Am I approaching him to really listen, to really acknowledge his authority and to be a servant the way he was? Or am I approaching him just to criticize him, just to object to something, just to resist, or just to find some new position for myself that I think might be impressive? No, we come to Jesus to learn to serve the way he served. And that is a life of sacrifice. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for listening to A Year with Jesus today. Next week, we will be in Mark chapter 12 and chapter 13. If you want more details, visit us at EmbryHills.com slash podcast.